Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Danny Rendezzo from Passive Investing Team. Uh, thank you for taking time, uh, Danny. I appreciate it. <laughs> Always grateful to be here. Happy to help uh, the listeners improve their cash flow. Kind of the name of the game. Sure, absolutely. Da- Danny is a great friend of investors. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of uh, folks must have heard him through various mediums he's giving webinars and speaking at conferences and he's obviously available on many podcasts as well uh, so today we are going to dig into some of his story you know what their group does and also the fact that uh, how they are kind of navigating through this crisis uh, as we are into so that'd be a, a great uh, conversation to catch up uh, so uh, danny uh, give us some background as to how you got started and how uh, you kind of came into the realistic side of things yeah the um the short version story is you know, I was um, working as a full-time consultant and I was traveling all over the the world in the United States. And it was um, very time consuming to be getting on a plane and traveling typically Monday through Thursday, pretty much Mm -hmm. every week out of the year. And I kind of looked to the future of what that career path held. And I, I quickly realized that I was never in control of my time. While it sounds fun to be traveling or um, you know, getting a W-2 paycheck on a regular basis. That to me was just scary of continuing to do that same thing and spending so much time away from home and your family and the things that you enjoy doing. And so that to me kind of put a, a pivot in my career path and direction. And I quickly got interested in real estate, started buying properties and kind of scaled up into what we do today because, um, you know, I, I jokingly said at the beginning of the show, cash flow and it's why we do it. Um, but it means a lot to us and our group to purchase multifamily properties that do generate monthly cash flow and provide returns to investors on a regular basis. Um, so not only can you control your time, but you can also put your money to work for you and generate income every single month where other types of investments like the stock market just don't do that or don't have the consistency um, to do that. So to date, our group, PassiveInvesting.com, we own about 2,300 units across the Southeast US. Um, It's valued at about $275 million and we are actively looking at and acquiring more deals. Um, Our kind of sweet spot criteria, we look in a few specific markets Mm -hmm. um, in North Carolina and South Carolina, um, but that's predominantly where we focus today. We like to buy assets in 
really sought after neighborhoods and submarkets of places like Charlotte or Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so within those markets, we want to buy in the best submarkets where people are moving to, there's more jobs being created, and people really love living there, whether it's the schools or the amenities. Um, our kind of real high level piece is if it's within a 15 minute drive to Whole Foods, that's the market that we want to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's proven to be a very stable type of market even learning what we have through COVID of um, just more stability, more um, stable jobs, a little bit more stable economy. Mm-hmm. I know there's places around the country who that have been hit tremendously hard, um, but our markets have seemed to withstand some of that insulated area because again, we're not buying in heavy tourism driven markets. Sure. We're not buying in heavy entertainment driven markets like uh, Las Vegas or in Orlando, Florida. Um, So some of these things, you know, we didn't know that we knew, but it has certainly been a beneficial learning curve and it, it has kind of ingrained in us even more about our market selection and specific submarket selection. And so Once we identify kind of that 15 minute radius to Whole Foods within Mm -hmm. these markets, Mm -hmm. we'll look at properties that are typically greater than $30 million. So they're institutional quality apartment communities. These are Mm -hmm. places that you would see yourself living or maybe uh, a family member, either a, a retiree or a new person joining the workforce or finishing school. Um, So these are great places where, again, people want to live in that community and they want a really nice apartment to live in that is affordable to them. Um, So that's kind of our our criteria in terms of market, our criteria in terms of property type. We're typically buying things greater than 150 units in size. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what we do today. So we're still actively looking at deals. Um, The market is a little bit slower right now, but as we kind of finish and move into Q3 of 2020, we are seeing deals um, being brought to market and buyers and sellers are beginning to kind of get a little bit more active now. So I hope that continues and I hope that we can get a new deal under contract very soon. Sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you for such a detailed uh, clarification there, uh, Danny. Uh, And also speaking of, you know, let's say your background, Danny, did you directly start in the commercial real estate side of things, uh, Danny, or was that you perhaps did any uh, other things in real estate before venturing into multifamily? Yeah, the first um, the first investment property that my wife and I acquired was a one million dollar commercial office building, and the the way we do it, and you know, I can go into more detail if the listeners want more detail on this. Go to my my website, dannyrandazzo.com, Check out the blog post, but I have some videos about goal setting and and working backwards to achieve that goal. Well. Mm-hmm. Replacing my uh, corporate W-2 income was the first goal that we had and buying 10 or 20 single family homes to cash flow, you know, 500 bucks each, it would have taken us a much longer period of time. And so I said, that doesn't really make sense. I need to buy something larger that produces more cash flow. And again, it, it's really why we stay focused on 
multifamily assets. So if you mm -hmm. said, hey, I've got the greatest shopping center of all time to de as a, an opportunity, I would say thank you, no thank you, and move on to the next apartment opportunity that we really want to buy. Sure. Um, because we're, we're very focused on multifamily properties in our specific market that meet our specific criteria. Mm -hmm. And that's been even more ingrained in us since COVID happened um, because it, it gives us stability. It gives us sure. the kind of security of having a stable asset. And that that's much better than having a um, an unknown or a, um, a higher risk investment type. So that's not what we do. Sure, sure. Now let's uh, speak, uh, Danny, about, you know, obviously you stated your group invests a lot in Carolinas. Uh, that's kind of your niche market around there. Uh, but, you know, someone listening uh, who wants to, you know, perhaps uh, focus in upon understanding, you know, where they can choose to invest. Uh, would you maybe help us understand what, what would be some of the top factors someone can say that, hey, uh, I want to start looking into multifamily, uh, but what are some of those top uh, things that someone can kind of say that, uh, hey, the, here are some of the sort of the states or the markets they should focus in, uh, you know, are there any key elements uh, regarding that? You know, the, the most important thing is what your specific goal is as an investor. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if your goal is to have a ton of appreciation in 20 or 30 years, and you do not want any cash flow between now and 20 years from now, then you should be looking at new kind of up and coming markets or areas. If your goal is the opposite and you want to have cash flow today that is stable, um, then you should be looking in more mature or developed metros. And so mm. I'm a firm believer that there are good opportunities in any market that mm. you are invested in. It really just depends on what your goal is. So sure. our group's goal is to generate cash flow on a monthly basis. And so mm. we also want to have markets where there's population growth, and job growth. So sure. that's why we really like the Southeast US, right? A lot of people are migrating from the North, from some of the colder states, or maybe the states with higher taxes, like a California, and they're moving here to the Southeast US for the quality of life, the affordability, sure. and it's got great weather year round. Well, sure. you know, I think there's good deals to buy in California. I think people are still going to live there, but you need to figure out what meets your goals sure. and mm -hmm. the markets that are going to do that. So from a high level, if, if you're looking for similar quality apartments that we go after, I would mm -hmm. say if your market has job growth and population growth, those would be two very good, um, economic indicators to evaluate to see if that market makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the, the quick rule of thumb is really it's just supply and demand. So mm -hmm. if there's more demand for people to rent, which we've seen is happening, right? Most people in the United States rent versus own. Sure. And with COVID, a lot of the lenders have made home purchasing, um, a little bit more difficult either with more down payment money 
um, higher credit score requirements. And so we're getting a higher volume of renters. And so for me, if there's more demand to rent and less supply available, that mm -hmm. makes for a pretty good market condition as a property owner. Mm -hmm. And so again, if you add in job growth and population growth to that, now you're creating this demand where there's a big demand for nice apartments that are well-maintained, well-managed in communities where people really want to live Mm -hmm. you're going to stay occupied and you're going to be able to charge uh, a, a good rate of rent to generate some return on your investment. Sure. Now, speaking of various sub-markets, uh, uh, Danny, you stated that you like to be perhaps within that uh, 15 miles uh, or 15 minute radius uh, from your Whole Foods. So you're typically targeting a up upscale neighborhood of sorts uh, and things like that. Uh, could you maybe delve into some more details about uh, you know, sort of your deal acquisition criteria. Uh, you know, you said 30 uh, million and up average size. Uh, could you maybe break it down in terms of, you know, sort of what vintage or what year types, how many units, uh, yep. uh, some, some of that stuff? Yeah, so it's got to be more than 150 units. Um, we're typically looking at deals that are built between 1995 and 2005 plus mm -hmm. or minus five years. So mm -hmm. kind of 1990 to 2015. Sure. Um, these types of assets, again, recently built, well-maintained, very well-made, um, stabilized occupancy from a historical perspective. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're not buying deals that are 50% occupied. We're buying deals that are 93% plus occupied. And so, mm -hmm. We're looking at, again, institutional quality assets. Um, it's nice apartment communities where people really want to live. And that has created um, a good supply and demand for the markets that we look at. Sure, sure. Now, speaking of, you know, cash flow and sort of the value adds and things like that, um, how are you kind of achieving that? Are you able to kind of target deals that perhaps have any, uh, like, let's say any deferred maintenance, or perhaps you can improve some management efficiencies to kind of, you know, uh, get the more uh, sort of the uh, net operating income and things like that. So are there any metrics around like, you know, typical rent bumps uh, that you look for sort of, sort of, you know, let's say properties that have not been maximized uh, to its fullest extent. How, how are you achieving that Delta, by the way? Yeah, it depends. Every deal is different. Um, there's really kind of two types of deals that we go after. What I call a stabilized deal, where we're not going to do any sort of capital improvement or value add. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite of that is a value add deal, where you're going to spend money to renovate units or improve the exterior of the buildings or add more amenities. And you're going to try to drive rents by spending money um, to upgrade the property. On sure. value-add types of deals, it's a very straightforward return on investment calculation. So mm -hmm. if I spend $1,000 a unit and I'm going to get a $100 rent bump, um, that is a phenomenal ROI sure. that would never exist. So these numbers right. are made up. But let's say you spend you know, $5,000 a unit 
and you're able to achieve a $100 rent premium, that's a very good ROI as well. Sure. And so from those types of value add deals, you just need to evaluate what your capital spend is going to be and what your rent bumps are going to be and, and really determine what your ROI is. And if it's a project that you want to go after, that makes sense and that the returns are there. And then from a stabilized asset acquisition, you know, you look at maybe some of those operational efficiencies. So maybe the previous management company um, didn't keep up with market rents and maybe they trail market rents by five or $10. And so if a, if a two bedroom unit rents for $1,000 today, but tomorrow your management company could rent them for $1,010, you just run those numbers and figure out what to do there. And so you know, we've found success in doing both of those deal types. Mm -hmm. I think with COVID um, kind of being in that post COVID world, as we still live it today, I think value add deals are more challenging for two reasons. Number one, the kind of financing that is typically most advantageous for value add deals um, is very slow right now. It's not competitive at all. So pricing is very challenging as a borrower. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't make those deals look as good on paper. And then number two, um, from a value add perspective, I think if you're trying to raise rents by a hundred or $200 rent bumps, it may be difficult if we're still in this kind of um, unknown economic time post kind of getting through COVID and it's still sure. going on today. So I think that would be pretty challenging to take to investors this major value add opportunity where we're going to take rents from 1000 to $1,200. Um, I would just be very cautious on going after a deal like that unless you're, you're very conservative in your underwriting and you know that there's a market of renters ready, willing, and able to rent for that $1,200 premium. So I think those deals are hard. So the stabilized deals are really what we find um, the most interest in at today's point in time. The situation is changing very rapidly as we continue to progress and hopefully make our way towards a vaccine and a presidential election. So I think we're just going to continue to kind of look for those two deal types. And mm -hmm. ideally, we'll be buying stabilized deals that we're not drastically renovating through capital expenditure to increase rents. Sure, sure. And, and, and I agree with you, Danny, there that I think the whole value add scenario where, especially in the given times, that you know you want to go from let's say the thousand to eleven fifty twelve hundred. It sounds very risky because you know obviously going through COVID uh, as we are, I think the whole notion that okay we are going to suddenly start to increase the rents and things like that, it does start to feel very uh, sort of risky because you know you have such a large project. I mean. Typically, we are saying during, during the COVID, be very modest with your rent assumptions and things like that. So trying to do further a value add and then again, start to increase the rents and things like that, it, it does start to become very risky at that point. Yeah. Uh, and, and the way to combat that is really the conservative nature. So I'm not saying that those deals are bad, sure. but if you're going to turn over one unit a month out of 
300, I'm sure you can find one person to rent for your new $1,200 rent premium. But if you're turning over 10 or 20 or, you know, 30 units in a month, um, that it, that's where it doesn't feel conservative. So being conservative, maybe you turn over a few units each month from a renovation standpoint over the next 12 months to get us through COVID and then you ramp up renovations in the future. I think that could work. I'm just, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be aggressive on new market rent premiums um, for projects. Sure, sure. Now you stated, Danny, that yes, you are buying the mostly the newer stuff, perhaps thirty million dollars and up, right? So obviously, uh, that's a high number. Uh, but then, you know, like for example, the case about generating that typical cash flow and things like that. Uh, so in those stabilized deals. Um, what is typically your target in terms of rent bumps and things like that? Do you think that uh, $10, $15 is giving you that uh, sort of delta to achieve your ret- uh, returns? Or is it something that you're looking for perhaps uh, a greater spread between the rent differential? What is sort of that magic in, in that? You know, I-, I wouldn't say it is only rents. Um, we We just bought a project a few months ago and we're not anticipating any rent premium at all. (laughs) So I think from a stabilized asset um, acquisition criteria, I think there's different areas where you can try to improve operations from the previous ownership group Mm -hmm. or, you know, more than likely with really good debt, if you are able to get an agency loan at, you know, three, three and a half, sub 3% interest rate, you should be able to turn a lot of cash flow. um, Even if you operate under the same income and expense assumptions as the previous owner did. And so I think the debt market has allowed people to be fairly successful in achieving cash flow on a monthly basis, because interest rates are as low as they have been in you know, the last (laughs) 10 plus years, almost, I would use the word ever, but I don't like that word. So um, in in a long time, they're really low interest rates. And so that's been very beneficial to multifamily owners as well. Sure, sure. Now, speaking of, you know, obviously optimizing the efficiencies and things like that, uh, what are some of the things you're looking for? Are you maybe targeting that someone's payroll is higher or perhaps, uh, you know, their repair budgets are higher or maybe like the contract services, uh, you know, for the different vendors that they're doing. How are you kind of piecemealing through sort of reduction of your expenses of sorts? Yeah, we evaluate every deal and we work very closely with our property management company. Um, They're a third party group. And Mm -hmm. so it's a good way for us to kind of come up with our own underwriting assumptions as far as those property operating expenses go, like what payroll should be. And then we compare those numbers to what our management company says they should be for this asset type in this location. Mm -hmm. And then we also use our lender as a third set of data because your lenders typically finance way more deals than any one of us own. And they know more about a given market probably than us or CoStar or or other data sources because they are lending on 
six properties in that area. And so they get their expenses from those properties as well. And so having those three sets of data allow us to come up with our one final assumption mm -hmm. of what we're going to estimate these expenses to be. And we feel very good and confident in those numbers. And mm -hmm. then it's all about closing on the deal and then monitoring your budget to actual to make sure that you stay under. Um, or if you go over in a month, that's okay. You mm -hmm. just need to make it up on the next month. And so you're, you remain budget neutral kind of quarter by quarter mm -hmm. or year by year. Sure, sure. <laughs> Makes sense. Now walk us through a little bit, uh, Danny, in terms of how that works out. Like, you know, let's say a deal comes to your uh, uh, group, right? You are kind of looking at it. Numbers make sense. You perhaps have your own budget. Uh, how do you marry sort of these three elements here? Like, you know, going from, let's say, your budget, the property management budget, obviously you have lender coming into, could you maybe sort of play as if like it's an in process, like how, how would that play out? Yeah, so we would get, you know, all of the numbers in one collective spreadsheet. We would <laughs> review them as a group. We would get input from our property manager and then we would develop together that final kind of budgeted numbers uh, for, in not only income, but also expenses. And then mm -hmm. we plug that into our underwriting model and make sure that we're able to achieve those returns. So it's a pretty quick process. You know, I would say for any listener who um, it maybe does not have a good relationship with a property manager, I think that's where you may run into some obstacles because it is important to get that second opinion of what these expenses are typically going to be in mm -hmm. this particular market. Mm -hmm. And a property manager is going to know very well what those numbers are. And so I would highly encourage a listener, if you're, if you're coming up with expenses and underwriting deals and no deal is a good deal that you've looked at, you may be off in your numbers and have another look at those numbers with a management company who could help you maybe revise them to be um, more accurate. Sure. Now, uh, speaking of all of that, uh, Danny, so are you maybe perhaps going into with a certain business plan, you're working closely with a property management company? Typically, is that uh, kind of one or two set of property management companies for a given market? Or you kind of go to your favorite company and say, hey, give us some uh, budget based on what we are looking to do? Or do you kind of take their independent input saying, hey, this is the deal. Uh, tell us that what do you think the expenses will be or CapEx will be? What sort of factors play into all of that? You know, we, we rely strongly on our relationship. So we may mm -hmm. have one or two management companies mm -hmm. give us kind of quotes, opinions, talk to us about their experience in that market. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, you know, we have deep relationships with these with these companies, we own about 2,300 units. So sure. that has been very helpful. So from a, a listener perspective, if you're new to the business, I, I don't think it hurts to talk to maybe five to 10 different management companies, have interviews with them, 
maybe you know you get budgets or proposals from three of them and you pick one sure. but that's kind of the way that i would do it i think you need to do the legwork to build those relationships um, and ultimately make sure that you're making a sound investment decision and it and it always helps to get multiple opinions from um, different sources that know the market very well. Sure, sure. Now, speaking of broker relations, Danny, you know, as we all know that multifamily brokers are pretty much more or less the gatekeepers for a lot of these deals. I mean, they have relations across the board for all different owners and uh, groups and things like that. Uh, could you maybe help us share your journey of how you sort of built and developed your broker relations as things went on and you progressed through the years uh, with your company? Yeah, broker relationships are again, uh, one of those things that are built over time. So, you know, in general, I think brokers are always gonna be friendly and talk to you. Um, I think once you buy a deal from a broker in the market that you wanna invest in, like that is a huge barrier to entry. If mm -hmm. you've never bought a deal in, a, in the market, with a broker, you're going to have a difficult time. You're going to need to do more phone calls to the brokers, more coffee with the broker, take them out to lunch, you know, get to know them personally. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you do one deal with one broker in that one market you want to buy in, it makes it a lot easier because you can always say to a new broker, hey, we just bought this deal with this broker and you get immediate um kind of proof of um the instant credibility of sorts credibility like, yep. thank you you sure. get that mm -hmm. proof of credibility and the buyer or the broker knows that you're for real you can purchase deals right you can close a deal that's their biggest concern sure. the broker would look terrible if they supported a buyer who did not close a deal and so once you get one, that's a huge hurdle to get over. Sure. And then e even just getting the one, brokers talk. They talk about being, you know, who good buyers are, who is a good human, who is nice to work with. Sure. Um, I, I think you can still get everything you need to do and get a good deal and also be nice along the way and be a good human to everyone around you. Sure. And that is going to take you really far. So I think once you get one deal, your life becomes a little bit easier in broker relationships. Before you get one, it's very difficult. <laughs> and you're always going to be like 10th on their list. Sure. So don't think they don't like you, but just know you're 10th on the list because nine other people have bought a deal from them before and they know, like, and trust them more than you. So once sure. you get the one, now you're in the club. Now life becomes a little bit easier. And once you get two and three, then brokers start talking and a lot of brokers are going to start calling you um, to, to go out to lunch with them or get coffee from them um, so they can add you to their list and get you to buy some deals from them. 
Sure, sure. Thank you for that detail. Uh, now, Danny, obviously, going we are going through the COVID crisis. You know, we are seeing you know sort of all the tenants are having challenges in terms of you know all the different uh, issues that have been propped up now. Uh, you know, let's say if the properties are affected with different uh, uh, you know issues in terms of you know varying rents and things like that. So you know, a buyer looking at deals let's say uh, down the line like uh, uh, you know whatever so september october november and things like that and they want to look back uh, you know how are how how can someone sort of safeguard themselves from all these uh, sort of issues of covid that how do we know what's exact noi uh, are there any sort of uh, you know safeguards that your group is taking when they are looking at deals to kind of maybe weed out the noise uh, that COVID may throw at all these things? Yeah, I think from an accounting perspective, most ownership groups should be tracking um, income or bad debt related to COVID on a COVID line item on mm -hmm. their T12 or on their P&L statement. Same thing goes for expenses. So if you had to buy extra hand sanitizers or gloves or little uh, foot coverings or face shields or masks for your maintenance crew to wear inside someone's apartment, all of those expenses should be categorized as a COVID expense. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think you should see those expenses listed out, mm -hmm. but you can always make an, an assumption um, that, you know, if by September there's a vaccine and everyone is cured of COVID, um, you know, maybe you exclude those items from a T12 and say, okay, that's completely behind us. Um, maybe we'll plan a little bit if some new virus comes out, mm -hmm. but I, I think you need to make an educated decision on it, but make sure to validate and, and ensure that those line items are there. I think if a seller is trying to tell you their property was not affected at all by COVID. They did not have any expenses or income loss associated to COVID. Uh, they're not being truthful. So I think that would be a red flag to me if I was a buyer looking at a deal. Sure. Now, Danny, just shifting gears a bit, you are a big mindset guy, you know, sort of setting your house correctly in, in order before you start approaching the market and things like that. How, how do you sort of uh, set up your goals or how that has helped you in a way? You shared earlier that you start with your goals and then go after the deals and things like that. Uh, what is some of your advice from setting up your mindset uh, in the correct order? Could you share your strategies? My biggest thing is you need to figure out why you're doing something. So buying an apartment um, just to invest in something is not a good answer. Mm -hmm. uh, buying an apartment to produce monthly cash flow so you can quit your job and spend more time at home and take care of your kids or your family or whatever, that long piece, that is a, a real answer. That is adequate. And that type of specific determination is what's going to get you up early in the morning. It's going to keep you looking at more deals after hours or spending weekends looking at deals and evaluating deals and talking to brokers. It's not 
easy work. It's time consuming, sure. but having that drive and that determination will get you to where you want to go. And so the, the other piece to that is how do you know where you're going if you don't have a destination in mind? So you can't ever get there. Sure. And so again, it comes back to what is that goal? So are you buying an apartment community to produce cash flow to quit your job to be home to take care of your family uh well how much money do you need to do that mm -hmm. so you know what's that cash flow number that you need to get to to quit your job to stay home to take care of your family and to uh to feel fulfilled so that's why you know having goals is the most important piece because you don't know what you're trying to do if you don't have a reason to do it uh, from a goal perspective, I typically do my goals annually. So mm -hmm. December, I will get my goals done for the next year ahead. And goals are never set in stone. I keep them on my whiteboard. I see them every day. They're mm -hmm. right across the vision from mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And I can scratch a goal out. I can erase it. I can add to the board. I can update the board. I can change a timeline. But I like to be looking at my goals mm -hmm. and working towards them. And um, the, these are typically goals that I try to accomplish throughout the year. So mm -hmm. some may be done already. Mm -hmm. um, some may be accomplished in the coming weeks or by December 31st of 2020. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I'm a stickler for the goals and it, it just helps me. There's people, um, friends of mine who write their goals down every day in a journal and mm -hmm. that helps them get motivated for it. Sure. So what I would say is find something that works for you from a listener perspective, but you need to have those key goals that are going to get you up early in the morning, keep you working and keep you focused to move forward to accomplish the things that you really want to accomplish in life. Awesome. Incredible advice. Uh, thank you, uh, Danny. So share with our listeners how they can find you and learn more about your company and all the things that are happening around you. Absolutely. If you want to learn more about apartment investing or kind of our group and what we focus on, go to passiveinvesting.com. Check us out there. Join our club and we'll get on the phone and have a conversation about your goals. And if you are interested in learning more about me or some of my other podcasts that I've been on, even the podcasts that I produced myself, go to dannyrandazzo.com and everything that you would like to know is found there. <laughs> awesome. You've been a great guest. Uh, thank you for sharing all your experiences and advice, uh, Danny. Uh, and I look forward to you know having you on another future episode as well, where we can learn a lot more tidbit details or some other uh, elements of uh, your personality and some of the deals that you're doing. So thank Sounds you for coming on. <laughs> great. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Grateful to be here and don't hesitate to reach out. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest. <music>